0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast for the weekend of February 7th, 2021, Super Bowl Sunday, Mission Hills, we're doing a little prop bet, I sent it out on the group text and I think I put it on the Facebook group chat, so if you want to get in on the prop bet picks, just for fun, I'm going to throw out a couple of gift cards for those who, the winner who gets the score, the winner and the score of the game closest, and whoever gets the most sort of like random prop bets total. So we're gonna send out two gift cards to whoever gets the most prop bets and then calls the winner and score the closest. I think Lena picked the Bucks 14 to five. So she set the bar pretty high for everyone, 14 to five. I'm not really sure how the Chiefs are going to get only a safety and a field goal, but we'll see. We'll see, you never know. It could be an underdog pick. All right, well, uh, I hope everybody's doing well. We are going to continue this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, and this morning I am going to read out of the message. Directly on leaving the meeting place, they came to Simon and Andrew's house, accompanied by James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed, burning up with fever. They told Jesus, and he went to her, took her hand. And raised her up. No sooner had the fever left her than she was up fixing dinner for them. That evening after the sun was down, they brought the sick and evil afflicted people to him. The whole city lined up at the door. He cured their sick bodies and tormented spirits. Because the demons knew his true identity, he didn't let them say a word. While it was still night, way before dawn, he got up and went out. To a secluded spot and prayed. Simon and those went uh, with him. Went looking for him. They found him and said, "Everybody's out looking for you." Jesus said, "Let's go to the rest of the villages so I can preach there." Also, this is why I have come. He went to their meeting places all through Galilee, preaching and throwing out demons. The word of the Lord. Okay, so in the season of of Epiphany, which we will uh, wrap up our mini series this week we've been asking questions around what does it mean to believe which is a call that Jesus gives out to his disciples uh, regularly in the gospel of John which we did several weeks ago and then in the last few weeks in the gospel of Mark what does it mean to follow Christ and so we've talked about uh, calling the Jesus calling the disciples uh, the response and our response to to this kind of call and last week, in particular, the liberating aspect of what this call produces in the disciples in Jesus's ministry, and hopefully in our lives, that this life of being called and following whatever that is, uh, it's liberating. So this morning, we're going to kind of continue this thread and talk about the death-resurrection pattern that we see in the first part of this text. So we'll really focus just on the first part of this text and how that translates into uh, a life in service to others. Okay, so one of the things that I wanna talk about just in the very uh, front of this text is we have this healing of Simon's mother-in-law. It's a very classic sort of healing story in the Gospels. But I wanted to just at least acknowledge something that we talked about several months ago during our Women Revolution series, in which we don't get a lot about Simon's mother-in-law's background. We don't even get her name. We've talked about that before. We often don't get women's names in the Bible. and So when we hear stories about women, I think it's important to just remember and acknowledge that we are only getting part of the story. And so... I was reading a commentary this week from New Testament scholar Caroline Lewis, and she's explaining her perspective on uh, this kind of confusing moment where it seems like that Simon's mother-in-law is healed and then sort of automatically forced back into a first century gender role as a woman in uh, in serving Jesus and those that were gathered there. So in the message translation, it says, you know, no sooner had the fever left her than she was up fixing dinner for them. And so that can, uh, I think to our modern ear sound really pretty awful and (laughs) it needs to be uh, picked apart a little bit. So New Testament scholar, Caroline Lewis wrote this about this story. She says, what she's healed so that she can serve whom did she want to, is that all she could do didn't she have any other aspirations? If you're brought from the, the brink of or brought back from the edge almost death or from the brink of what you thought your life had been, shouldn't, it be there, shouldn't there be something else for you, some sort of new vocation, new career, new identity, and she served them as if that was what she was expected to do, as if that was the only thing that she thought she could do, as if that was the only thing she could do. But what if the healing of Simon's mother-in-law was bringing her back to be the mother she always was and that she wanted to be? And in being brought back to who she was, she became a disciple called to minister, to serve like the angels did for Jesus in the wilderness and like the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve. And so I think all of her questions in talking about this story, uh, Are very helpful in getting at this idea of what does it mean for Simon's mother in law to be the, um, maybe the first archetype in the Gospel of Mark for sure, to embody this life of service that is what Jesus is himself embodying in the world. And I think one could argue that the suffering servant is the main archetype for Jesus's life. And service is uh, a key component for following Christ, for being a disciple. Later in, in Mark, like Caroline points out, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And I think this is a key paradox to Jesus's life and that the incarnation is God with us and that that's a descending movement of the Spirit into the world and to the lowly, and to the suffering. So Jesus is uh, in the gospel of Mark, and maybe I'd argue all across the gospels, is teaching us and demonstrating in in the gospel narratives with the people that he's living with, he's teaching how to be fully human. And so this service may be front and center of that movement, a life of service. And so Simon's mother-in-law's resurrection story, this healing, it, it can be signaling that it is just bringing her into the fullness of life and service to others, which is giving us uh, in this text the first use of the term where we get the word deacon from. So when this text talks about uh, Simon's mother-in-law serving them, th- the word there that is used for service is the same word that we get the English word uh, deacon from so, maybe a next natural question is: What does it mean for us to serve? How do we serve others in our life? What does collective service look like for not only our community but for broadening those circles of communities? How is it? How is it really possible for us to engage in acts of service in? This kind of way that we see uh, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law's resurrection story move into her movement towards the service of others. So maybe I want to clarify uh, that thinking through the last several weeks that this ability to serve as we talk about that, and I'll probably say serve a ton of times in this podcast, uh, it comes from the grace of the trans- the transformative Christ event. So in this particular story, it's Simon's mother-in-law being brought back from the brink of death, and we've seen uh, the Christ event in different people's lives over the last several weeks, whether it was Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, or Jesus calling uh, James and John to drop their nets. There's a, a Christ event uh, that brings people into a kind of grace that then hopefully leads them to serve. I mean, we know the disciples misunderstand, they're confused about what this really means the whole time. And, and that's probably emblematic of so many of our lives and how we have to be continued continually reminded about um, the transformative Christ event in our own lives to be able to live a life of some kind of service. And a way to think about this is to even think about the, the term paradigm shift, which is uh, you know a term coined by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, who's a physicist and philosopher. And the way it's described, at least from the scientific perspective, is that there's a—it's when a shift arises when the uh, dominant framework or understanding under which uh, normal or typical science operates is rendered incompatible with the new phenomena, facilitating an adoption of a new theory or paradigm. So it completely shifts the the framework of the understanding in which things were operating previously and so we we use that term a lot paradigm shift is is uh, like a common cultural term now but it's basically signaling that everything prior to the new phenomenon or the christ event as we're using it here is rendered incompatible with this new understanding of life so in an encounter with christ in this story and in other stories there's a radical shift in one's life and this often happens during tragedy, hardship, suffering, in which the event so shifts our experience of life that we're never the same again. For Simon's mother, mother-in-law, it's the illness that has her on the brink of death. And then Jesus, uh, the text says, lifts her up. And that term right there, the term there when he lifts her up is signaling to resurrection, resurrection into new life, resurrection into a reimagined life, a life in... Movement towards other people, so there's an openness to this kind of love from her, uh, from her suffering. So this is what we're kind of unpacking a little bit this morning, and just kind of exploring is the pattern of death and resurrection is one of the primary human and and maybe ecological experiences of transformation of. Uh, paradigm shifts and we can look into the natural world whether it's butterflies or seasons and see the death and resurrection pattern all around us so paradigm shifts serve as both endings and beginnings which I think is helpful because it reminds us that that God is continually happening around us and hopefully in our lives and that that is continues to be our centering idea, and if we think back at the beginning of the year, uh, the centering idea of God is this phrase: "God with us, God with us." And this is where I've mentioned it several times over the last few weeks. That I find Cynthia Bourgeau's question or idea of living from the kingdom of God helpful, because it reframes uh, that there can't there can't be a faking of living. It from this space of loving service to others that you we live from the kingdom of God we live from um, the edge of the paradigm shift moving forward in ser- loving service to others. So uh, I, I think that that framework for me like flipping it is is helpful. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's is helpful to everybody else you can let me know on Sundays. but last week I tried to briefly distinguish cheap grace and costly grace and I wanted to to clarify, that there's a difference between cheap grace, as we were using it last week, and free grace. So cheap grace is intentionally or unintentionally using grace to remain the same, to resist transformation, or justify our own egoic sense of self or place in the world. It it stays the same. It's It's used as a mechanism to to remain the same, which Bonhoeffer was was getting at last week. And one of the aspects that I was trying to point out is that that's the primary modality of Western Christianity in that it's confused that idea of uh, cheap grace as grace, which is just associated most of the time with belief or religious identification, uh, life, prosperity, uh, or eternal salvation. This is cheap because it's... It's non-transformative and uh, it's self-serving by its very definition because it's about the individual. It's about the belief. It's about um, your religious identity or even sense of self. It's, it's building up a, a sense of self or saying that you're, you're going to gain something out of this or be blessed uh, from, from this or go to heaven because of this. And on the other side uh, costly grace is free. And maybe I didn't make that distinguish, but costly grace is free, free. but it's costly because it leads it, us into a life of uncertainty following Christ uh, who risked his life for the most vulnerable in society. It's, it's costly for that, but it's, it's free in that it's actually the only form of true grace that's there. One of the more difficult questions I think we avoid asking in discussions around following Christ and how grace moves or, or swells or bubbles up in our life is, where is Christ leading us? If we're, if we're thinking about following Christ, if we, if we want to use that metaphor, where is Christ lead, leading us? I think the Gospels give us a very obvious answer to that, which is the cross. It It forces us to face death rather than avoid it or think about heaven or something like that. Uh, I think so much of Christianity, traditional forms of Christianity, put a heavy emphasis on uh, avoiding death or talking about um, Christ uh, conquering death as a means to uh, avoid it on a personal and communal level. Uh, Joseph Campbell wrote, the experience of eternity right here and now is the function of life. Heaven is not a place to have the experience. Here is the place to have the experience. I think Jesus is teaching the disciples and us how to be human here and now in the uncertainty and sufferings of life. Uh, The disciples, much to their confusion, uh, Jesus constantly reminds them, particularly in Mark's gospel, that he will die, and they will too, and they don't really know exactly what to to make of it, and I think so much of Christianity avoids facing that as well, even though we know that the experience of human transformation necessitates the pattern of death and resurrection, because that is the pattern of true transformation. So when we avoid that pattern of death and resurrection, we're, we're avoiding The the movement of grace, we're avoiding the Christ event and we're avoiding our ability uh, as individuals and people to be transformed into a life of loving service. If we are not able to let go, to die to our ways of doing things, to allow the Christ event to break us open, for grace to open our lives into more service and more love, we haven't been transformed by an encounter with death and we cannot love. Deeply, when we avoid death at some level, we're avoiding the life that we have been given. To take up one's uh, cross, as Jesus says, is a paradoxical declaration of life. In the in Christian meditation, Father Thomas Keating talks about the practice of silence as the practice of a series of mini deaths, where Silence is opening us up to God's original language and a full presence in the seeming absence of the experience of that silence. The encounter with Christ transforms our understanding of what we are truly living for because it strips away self-serving ways of uh, survival, self-preservation, or avoidance that we typically rely on. And opens us up to live deeply. Okay, so what is the point of all of this? When I listen to anyone talk, I kind of, not in a prescriptive way, but I kind of want to know what's the what's the point? What's the controlling idea? What are we being uh, called into? What are we being invited to explore within ourselves and? In our lives, so as we close out this mini series in Epiphany, exploring what it might look like to uh, experience Christ, or what has it felt like to have Christ revealed to us in our lives, I want to close with a few questions around what does it mean to to follow? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to serve? Maybe who is an unlikely person in your life that you have come across that has shifted your perspective? so completely towards love and service to others and to life. What does it look like? And do our politics and our collective lives as a culture and a nation reflect a people who have been transformed by an event of grace to serve our planet and the disadvantaged with love? How does Jesus transform us to be more human? Where does he? Or how do we experience... God with us, this movement of the Spirit, which is a descending movement to be here with us now, to see Christ in everything, to live fully and courageously in eternity here and now, not afraid of death, but recognizing that death and resurrection is the pattern of our own transformation and the pattern of life around us. How does that help us or lead us to live here and now with more compassion? And these are just some of the questions that maybe we can talk about on Sundays. And uh, with that, I think we'll kind of leave it there for, for the day. I'm going to close us with a poem by Thomas Keating called The Secret Embrace. Before being born into the world of time, the silence of pre existence was all absorbing. The transition from eternity to time is full of sufferings, fears, and little deaths. But in the transition from death to eternal life, the silence of pre-existence bursts into boundless joy. All that can be manifested emerges from the endless creativity of that which is. But the secret embrace of the source of all creation with infinite transcendence can never be revealed." All right. Well, I hope you can join us on Sunday at 10 10 a.m. on Zoom. We have our final week in our community group going through the book Native by Caitlin Curtis. That will be Wednesday at 7 p.m. In the next week, we will start Atheism for Lent. So if you're interested in Atheism for Lent, send me a direct message, reach out to me, let me know, and I will send you all of that info personally. It is already paid for, so it's it's free if you want to sign up. You just need to uh, need to know who wants to be a part of it, and I will send you the information uh, the coming week. So with that, I hope everybody has a great week. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.